Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Often these days, I am very afraid for the USA's experiment in democracy. To be honest, the aspirations of our democratic republic have always been fraught, always in question, always susceptible to being diverted away from the world-inspiring possibilities of democracy, in danger of being diverted into fascism, totalitarianism, dictatorship, or the modern equivalent of feudalism. The threat seems ever greater these past 10 years, but fortunately, there are those working persistently and diligently in favor of democracy to both prevent further dissolution of the means of democracy and striving to repair and bring back those parts of our democratic heritage which are in tatters. So today for Spirit in Action, we'll be speaking with Jay Heck, Executive Director since 1996 of Common Cause in Wisconsin. And we'll be talking about specific ways to fix the broken apparatus of democracy by fighting gerrymandering, voter suppression, and buying elections, and working in favor of ethics, accountability, and voting rights. Jay Heck joins us by phone from Madison, Wisconsin. Jay, it's good to talk to you again and to have you here for Spirit in Action. Mark, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I look forward to this. I was really glad to run into you at the Wisconsin Grassroots Network Gathering. And to hear what you were talking about, you gave a a general address there, which I thought you spoke so well. And I thought you spoke particularly effectively in terms of a hopeful future, not just get out and campaign, but that, oh, it can be done this way. It is being done. Goodness. At some points, I've been worried that things like redistricting are kind of hopeless in terms of a solution. But you seem pretty hopeful about it. Well, I am. I mean, democracy struggles are like so many other struggles in this country. You have to look at them in terms of years and decades. People who expect change overnight ought not to get involved in democracy reform because that's just not how it occurs. It requires years of public education for citizens. It requires a lot of going around and getting people on board to the cause that you're trying to get through and persistence. A certain amount of denial is also important, and most importantly, a huge dose of self-deprecation and sense of humor. If you lack any of those things, then you're not going to find this work very rewarding. Well, if humor is so important, then you probably have a good joke to start out with, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know that I have a joke per se, just a general joke, but I think one of the things that when people ask me, you know, why is it that you do this type of work? The first response usually is, well, after all of the people I've offended over the years, I doubt I could get a job anywhere else. <laughs> so, so there's a little bit of that. Not that I try to go out of my way to be insulting, but when you're trying to affect change or reform, you're going to step on the toes of people who like the status quo the way it is and don't welcome someone coming in and trying to tell other people that things aren't as they should be. I think the thing for me always is that I understand that point of view because I once worked on that side of the equation. And so, you know, when people say, well, how do you know that the things you're talking about and you're criticizing are so dysfunctional or so wrong or so even evil, I can confidently say, well, because I was on that side for part of my career and 
any excuse that I've heard, I know how to respond to it because I used to make the same excuses. So, you know, it's, uh, I think, part of just doing something that you love for a long number of years as I have. You sort of learn the tricks of the trade, as it were. But in the meantime, at least I've been reinforced in the direction that I've taken in life and doing exactly what I want to be doing. Let's spell out what your history is, just in case anybody wonders, is Jay Heck a person who's got the background experience? Number one, since 1996, I think you've been sentenced to a a life term as (laughs) life in prison as the executive director of the Common Cause Wisconsin. But before that, you had a varied history, mostly in the political realm. Could you spell out a little bit about that so that people, you know, there's nothing being hidden here? Sure. No, my upbringing was not uncommon for people in doing the kind of work I do now, although it was kind of unique in the sense that I grew up as a Republican. Back then, I guess you would call Republicans of the type that I was uh, moderate Republicans. I was born in Ohio and grew up in uh, the Philadelphia area in upstate New York, and uh, we were known as Rockefeller Republicans. You don't see those anymore. They were all driven out of the party some years ago. But that was my political moorings through college. And yes, I was one of those students that went to college and those liberal professors changed my views. They awoken me uh, some things I had never thought about. And I became increasingly progressive, I think, as the years went on. My first job in politics, my first paid job in college was working for President Ford's re-election in Ohio. And, and then after that, I was ready to go to graduate school for foreign service. And I was transformed when I heard a Republican congressman by the name of John Anderson declare for the presidency in 1980. He was a very liberal Republican from Rockford, Illinois. He did not win the Republican nomination. Reagan did that year, but John Anderson ran as an independent. He's a very progressive Republican. Uh, I ran the state of Ohio for him at the tender age of 24. And so I had a real grounding in national politics. And I then went on and became a Democrat because I did not like Reagan. And I worked successfully in electing a member of Congress from the Philadelphia area, a Democrat, and served as his legislative director for six years before moving to Wisconsin in 1988. And there I worked for the Democratic Senate Majority Leader of the State Senate and was the Director of Communications for the Senate Democratic Caucus. So I have a background in both political parties. One of the jobs I did all through that period was raise money, political money. So I have a pretty good idea of how money influences policymaking. And when I hear members of Congress or legislators say, oh, no, it has no influence on my decision making, I know that's just not true. That's that's not human nature. Of course, you are always beholden to those that help you. So that's how I got my start. And I think that's one of the reasons I went to Common Cause, because I was very disturbed about the increasing amount of special interest money in politics and how it was corrupting the public policymaking process. We're going to follow a few strands of that, in particular your experience. I mean, one of the things you may have learned is Uh, Yeah, I know how to skirt the rules and get the money in that we want so that we can win our campaign. And I realize that anybody who's working in those positions thinks that they're working for a good cause. So even if they bend the rules or skirt the rules, I assume that they think they're doing it for a good cause. 
they're not just trying to raise the devil to political office or something. There are well-intentioned people who get blinded to the evil that they're doing. I don't know if that's too strong a word, evil. What terms would you use as part of Common Cause and as executive director for Wisconsin? Well, that's a good way to put it. I mean, I think when you're working in the partisan world, you can easily rationalize that the work you're doing is for the betterment of the citizenry as opposed to what the other side is doing. And, you know, the only politician that I think knowingly tries to not only skirt the rules but destroy the rules would be the Senate Majority Leader of the United States Senate, Mitch McConnell of Kentucky. He's made a career of trying to undermine campaign finance reform and trying to undermine democratic institutions for conservative objectives. But other than that, I think people on both sides have a certain sincerity about what they're doing. But in the end, it's exactly that. They utilize the fact that the end justifies the means. And so if they have to raise a lot of special interest money, then then they should do it to further their cause. And the thing about my work is that I've never believed that it has to be that way. There was a time in this country and certainly a time in, in the state of Wisconsin which not long ago, 20 years ago, was still considered one of the most progressive, clean, good government states in the country and model for the rest of the nation. And it was the sort of state that other states emulated in their passage of state law in order to clean up politics and make it so that it was fair, that it favored voters, that it didn't favor partisans of one side or the other that it didn't favor special interest money or voter suppression or many of the other things that we've seen that have happened not only in Wisconsin, but all over the country in the last particularly 10 years to destroy the underpinnings of democracy. So those are things that have been a constant source of challenge, but also fascination to me about is it possible to return to even 25 years ago where we were? let alone do much more that we should be doing and could be doing about cleaning up the corruption in this country, the money in politics, making it easier for people to vote, not more difficult, making it so that voters have the ability to choose their elected representatives through fair redistricting processes rather than the situation we have now where elected representatives choose the voters that they want to represent through gerrymandering. All of those things remain very, very pertinent, very, very relevant to our situation now, and the challenges, if anything, have grown larger. That's not to say that there haven't been some successes along the way. There have been, but I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with court cases like Citizens United that totally destroyed 100 years of settled law about money in politics and the undermining of voter rights through the Shelby decision of the United States Supreme Court and a whole host of other public policy decisions that have been made deliberately nationwide and and in states like Wisconsin to totally turn the direction of where we're going from moving towards more fairness and more representative democracy to less. Uh, So the challenges are always there for me. In many ways, I'm trying to get us back to 1996 (laughs) when I started, when, when things were a lot better than they are now, and I don't know what that says about me. Maybe it's maybe I'm the wrong person to be doing this, but it's part of a nationwide trend. It's not it's not just here in Wisconsin. So is Common Cause Wisconsin's motto make Wisconsin as great as it was back in nineteen ninety six again? <laughs> That's right. Back to the Future, wasn't that the movie? Yes. Uh, I think from 1985 or something. Yeah, I mean, that is in in many ways because the state of Wisconsin, you'll recall, was 
your listeners may have not known this, but there was a tremendously influential governor and U.S. senator by the name of Robert Marion LaFollette, Fighting Bob, as we call him, who really made Wisconsin the pioneer in the early 1900s, the first state to support the direct election of U.S. senators in primary elections, the first state to pass a whole host of progressive legislation like ending child labor and workmen's compensation and a whole host of other reforms to make life better for its people. And those were progressives, the progressive party. They were actually progressive Republicans. Teddy Roosevelt was of that ilk. These were the progressives who transformed Wisconsin into, again, the model. Louis Brandeis, a very famous United States Supreme Court justice, called Wisconsin the laboratory of, of democracy. And I think we could say certainly under the last eight years of Governor Walker's tenure, he, he was defeated this past November, but Walker transformed Wisconsin into the laboratory for how to undo democracy. And the things that he accomplished here in Wisconsin proved to conservatives and the Republicans in the rest of the country that if you can do it in Wisconsin, you can do it in Ohio and Michigan and North Carolina and a whole host of other states. And so Wisconsin led the way in the destruction of many of the reforms that not only the Wafalit uh, era brought to Wisconsin, but brought to the rest of the nation by their state legislatures and by the United States Congress. And the undoing of so much of that over the last 10 years originated right here in Wisconsin. So just make a note for yourself. I'm going to have you come back, Jay, to talk about Walker's changes, because I think we need to spell out detail why that's a pretty serious allegation you make. And I'm on board with it. But I don't know that everybody understands how we went from really the workshop of democracy to the workshop of the devil. I don't know. I'm trying to put it in pretty stark terms. But first, I want to have you cover basically what you said about redistricting, because a lot of people think that's just wonky detail stuff, and it's always been done, and it's no big deal, and it doesn't influence the elections that much. I've been looking at the numbers, and I know it has totally changed how our government works in Wisconsin. And I think it's happened the same in North Carolina, and I think it happened a number of other states where I think the representative democracy that we claim in this country has been undermined. So could you talk about redistricting? Why is it such a big deal? What kind of effect has it had? What can we do about it? Because I'm not just wanting to complain. I want to change things for the better. Well, I think it's important that your listeners understand that redistricting is required by the Constitution. Every 10 years, and this was written into the Constitution, we do the census. We count the people in every state in the country. Then the redistricting process is the process by which we redraw the state legislative and congressional district lines to reflect the changes in population, whether people have moved out of a district or moved into another district or been a lot of people born in one area or the other. Since 1962 in this country, there's been a requirement, a constitutional requirement, that every district be basically the same size. So every congressional district in the country is about 700,000 people. Some of them are less than that, like the state of Wyoming is only 350,000 total, but they still get one member of Congress. But every congressional district has to have the same number of people, and every state legislative district has to have the same number of people. So what that means is that the process by which you draw the lines becomes critical. And it has always thought to have been what we call inside baseball, something that politicians are supposed to do because that's what politicians do. 
they draw district lines. And it hasn't seemed to be a huge problem until really I'd say maybe the last 10 or 15 years, certainly the last 10 years, because generally speaking, there wasn't a strong partisan component. There certainly is a partisan component before uh, 10 years ago in some states like California and Illinois and uh, New York and others have gerrymandered to favor one political party or another. But it's really been within the last 10 years. And by gerrymandering, what we mean is that that's not sort of drawing the district lines so that there's a nonpartisan criteria to draw them. Gerrymandering means there's a, a specific intention to make a district perform in a way that it will elect a representative, a congressman or a state representative or a state senator of one particular party over another and make it very difficult for the other political party to have a chance to win that election. So that particular style of redistricting has really come to the forefront beginning really in 2011. It existed prior to that, but it's really within the last 10 years that we've seen the, the hyper-partisanization of the redistricting process. You know, in Wisconsin, all you need to understand is that in this past election, November of 2018, the Democrats won all of the statewide offices, what we call the constitutional offices, the governorship, the attorney general of Wisconsin, secretary of state, and the treasurer. Those are all elected offices statewide, and Democrats swept all of those. But at the same time that big majority of Wisconsinites were voting for Democrats for statewide office. And in statewide office, of course, there's no redistricting and gerrymandering because you get all of the votes cast statewide. But at the state legislative level, nothing changed. The Republicans maintained a huge majority in the Wisconsin Assembly, which is 99 seats. Their margin is 63 Republicans to 35 Democrats. And in the state Senate, the Republicans even though they got fewer votes statewide, actually added a seat. There are now 20 Republicans in the state Senate, 13 Democrats. So what that tells you right away is that even though 53% of all Wisconsinites voted for Democratic candidates for the state legislature, they only have 37% of the state legislative seats. So that includes the Assembly and the state Senate. And that's a pretty big difference between the number of votes cast for one party and the number of seats in the legislature. That's what we call partisan gerrymandering. You know, I had some trouble imagining how this could work, and I just made a simple example for myself. Let's say you had 100 voters in this state, and 50 of them voted Democrat, typically, and 50 of them voted Republican. If you drew your lines, say there were four districts in the state, if you drew your lines so that 25 Democrats were in one district, and that leaves that just 25 Democrats and 50 Republicans for the other three districts, and you set up all of those so you had eight Democrats and 17 Republicans voters in each of those, so you'd have three of the four districts going to Republicans easily, and one going solidly, completely to Democrats. Is that what happens in Wisconsin? Yeah, that's essentially exactly what happened. What happened was the Republican-controlled legislature and the Republican governor. And by the way, this is the first time it's happened in Wisconsin in 50 years because in every other redistricting process, we had split government. We had a, either a governor or a legislator of one political party, legislature of a different political party, so they split the difference. There's a compromise. It usually goes to the courts. In 2011, the Republicans had 
all of the levers of power. And by the way, this was a calculated effort by Republicans, not only in Wisconsin, but the same thing happened in Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and a number of other states. It was a strategic national plan by the Republicans, something called REDMAP, where they calculated that if they could get control of the legislatures, they would then be able to control the redistricting process. And it worked like a charm. So in Wisconsin, the redistricting process was completely in the hands of the Republicans. They packed more Democrats into fewer legislative districts, and they cracked the other districts. That's the terms we use, cracking and packing. And they made it so that Republicans were spread out over more districts. Ironically, the Democratic districts are even safer, for the most part, than the Republican districts because they're packed into fewer. But the Republicans are able to control the majority and maintain the majority because not only do they have enough Republicans in those districts to prevail, but they've also done other things to make sure that they win elections, like voter suppression measures, also eliminating limits on money in politics. Republicans tend to raise more money than Democrats. They were able to do things like eliminate disclosure laws so that nobody knew that out-of-state money was coming in to help Republicans. So what they basically did was they went after all of the Democratic, and I say that with a small d, democracy underpinnings to gain a partisan advantage and keep it for the next 10 years. Wisconsin, the gerrymander was considered to be the most partisan of any state in the country in 2011, but there were plenty of other states. North Carolina is a very good example that it was very close to Wisconsin. But again, Wisconsin took the lead on it. So that was, again, a calculated decision on the part of Republicans. I think what your progressive listeners have to understand, though, is that when this occurred in 2010, these gerrymandered districts weren't in place. And in fact, in Wisconsin, the Democrats controlled both houses of the legislature in 2010, and they controlled the governorship. They lost all that in a much fairer election, less gerrymandered districts than they are now. The Republicans won it, basically on the strength of their ideas and their ability to get out the vote. But then once they were in power in Wisconsin and in Ohio and Michigan and these other states, they then controlled the redistricting process so that they would ensure that they had control for the next 10 years. And it's worked like a charm, particularly in Wisconsin, which had the most partisan of all. Now, just so your listeners don't think that this is a Democratic versus Republican issue, the same thing has occurred in other states. Our neighbors to the south, Illinois, have equally as odious a redistricting problem with the Democrats controlling the process. In Illinois, the speaker of the Illinois General Assembly is a guy named Michael Madigan, who has been the speaker of that body since 1982. So almost 40 years, they've had the same guy, and he is an absolute dictator. He is everything that Mayor Daley was. He controls Illinois politics like a czar. So the same problem that Wisconsin has posed for Democrats, Illinois, and a couple of other states, Maryland and Rhode Island, are two other examples where they redistrict and gerrymander the hell out of the Republicans. This is not a partisan question. It's a, it's a question of power. It's a question of political power. When you have it, you don't want to give it up, and you often will do anything you can to preserve it. And that's what we're fighting against. And that's why it's so difficult to enact the kinds of changes that we need to enact 
it's not impossible to do this, but as I said at the outset of this conversation, it's not for the faint of heart. It takes many years. We've been working on the alternative to the partisan process we have here in Wisconsin for the last 11 years. We've had the same bill introduced. Finally, with a Democratic governor, we have it now in the budget. But these things take years and years to make progress on We're going to find out what that proposal is. First, I want to remind you, we are speaking with Jay Heck. He is executive director of Wisconsin's Common Cause. He's speaking to us today about democracy. How do we preserve it? How do we recover it? Because unfortunately, we've lost democracy to a significant degree in many places throughout the entire United States. And wherever you're listening to this from, You are tuned in to Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. On that site, you can find links to JHEC and Common Cause Wisconsin and the national organization because you'll have a Common Cause organization in your own state, wherever you're listening from. Also, on our website, you'll find a place to post comments Two-way communication is essential. I'm a big supporter of democracy and of communication. We can work best when we work together, and so I'd like you to do your part by posting a comment when you visit northernspiritradio.org. Also, there's a place to donate. This is full-time work, and the way that we get our support is not from government and not from corporations, but from you, the listeners. So please click donate when you come. Also support local broadcasts. In Madison, where you'll find Jay Heck, WORT is the big community radio station there. There's stations all across the nation who are carrying alternative news and music that you just get nowhere else. Start out by supporting them because the fourth estate is so essential to our project of democracy in this country. Again, we're talking to Jay Heck, Common Cause Executive Director for Wisconsin, and redistricting reform was the question that he spoke at the Wisconsin Grassroots Network Festival. We had a great celebration there just a couple weeks ago. You said that there is a bill that could straighten out Wisconsin. You already said, Jay, that when it was in the hands of the Republicans in Wisconsin and the Democrats in Illinois, that they had the power and so they used the redistricting unfairly to ensure their advantage. How can we cure that? You know, I think one thing it's important to understand is why partisan gerrymandering is so detrimental to the citizenry and to voters. It really comes down to this, whether it's a state like Illinois where the Democrats control everything or in Wisconsin where the Republicans do. This goes actually for both parties. In Wisconsin, we do not have a single competitive congressional seat. We have eight members of Congress in Wisconsin. All of them occupy utterly safe congressional seats because of gerrymandering. And in the Wisconsin legislature, only 10 of the 99 seats in the lower house, the assembly, the Wisconsin assembly, are remotely competitive. And in the state Senate, only five of 33 are remotely competitive. And so the problem with that is twofold. Number one, you have a much less responsive legislator or member of Congress if they have an utterly safe seat. They don't have to listen to you if they don't agree with you. 
they don't even have to answer your letter if they don't agree with you because it's going to be next to impossible to defeat them because they have the seat rigged. It's been designed to elect a member of that political party indefinitely until the next census and until there's been you know, some population shifts. But until that time, that's how it works. And if you have an unresponsive legislature, you have citizens who are not having their demands, their wants, their needs addressed. The other problem is that it creates greater polarization between the political parties because if there's no competitive fall election, it means that if there is competition for that seat, it's in the partisan primary. And generally what happens in partisan primaries on the Democratic side, the much more progressive candidate generally will defeat a moderate because the base of the Democratic Party tends to be more progressive. And then on the Republican side, the more conservative candidate usually beats the moderate because more conservatives participate in the partisan primary uh, than in the general election. The great majority of citizens of Wisconsin or of the country fall somewhere in the middle. They're, you know, left, moderate, middle of the road, moderately conservative, somewhere in there. But because there's no competitive general election, you find the most conservative candidates winning the primaries on the Republican side, the most progressive on the Democratic side. And then what you have is people talking past each other. There's no bipartisan compromise. And it's to compromise whether you like this or not. That's how things get done and that's how things move forward. And the left, I think, is equally sometimes as guilty of this as the far right in saying that they will not settle for incremental change on some of these issues, because sometimes that's the only way you do get change. And then you can build on that change to get more change. But if it's an all or nothing proposition every time, and if you have no compromise in the legislature or in the Congress, then things pretty much stand still and the body politic becomes polarized like it is now. That's just sort of the, the background to it and why people need to be concerned about it. And in Wisconsin, the vehicle that we've chosen and all reformers are united behind is the system that they have in our neighboring state of Iowa. It's called the Iowa model. And the reason for that is that if we were to try to do, for instance, what California does or Arizona does, where they've instituted citizens commissions who draw the district lines of legislature and the Congress, and they're able to do that and bypass the legislature. So California went from a very partisan gerrymandering state, one that the Democrats actually controlled for many years, and they now have a citizens commission that draws the district lines. It works pretty well there. Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was the Republican governor of California, actually led statewide that effort, but a lot of progressives joined in that effort too because they recognize that partisanship in gerrymandering and redistricting is ultimately a corrupt way to do it. So that's worked well. But in half the states of the country, we don't have what California has and Arizona has, and that's what's called initiative and referendum, where you can bypass the legislature and create a citizens commission. In Wisconsin, there is no way to bypass the legislature. And the Wisconsin Constitution says the legislature shall determine the district lines for the Congress and for the legislature. So ultimately, that means that the legislature has to vote up or down, at least, on the district lines. And that's why we've chosen the Iowa model. In Iowa, they have a nonpartisan legislative entity that actually draws the lines to a set of very nonpartisan criteria, which they have to abide by. And the criteria is simple. It's things like 
Squares are good. Rectangles are real good. Slippers are not good. You know, all the things that you see in a gerrymandered district, they avoid in Iowa. Communities of interest need to be kept together. Counties should be kept together. Cities should be kept together. You know, in Wisconsin, we have little cities like Beloit, population of 30,000. It's divided between three assembly districts, all for the purposes of partisan gerrymandering. Same thing is true with a number of other communities throughout the state, like like Sheboygan and a number of others. That's done just because the legislators want to have maximum control of how the outcome of the election is going to be. In Iowa, you can't use that criteria. You can't even use past election results when they draw the maps. So these nonpartisan bureaucrats draw the lines according to very nonpartisan criteria. The legislature has to either vote yes or no. They can't amend them. They have to vote up or down. And in Iowa, for the last 40 years, they've always passed because people have confidence in them. And people say that this is the fair way to do it. And the great thing, too, about the Iowa system is that no partisans dare try to amend the maps because they would be pilloried if they tried to gain a partisan advantage. That's why we've chosen the Iowa model, because in Wisconsin, we would have to amend the Constitution in order to try to get a citizen's commission type of thing. And the only thing harder than getting a public hearing on redistricting reform in Wisconsin is, is amending the Constitution of the state. That requires the legislature to pass that resolution in two consecutive sessions of the legislature. And, and that's just something they're never going to do. They're never going to vote to change the Constitution to dilute their own power in that way. So that's the vehicle. And it works well in Iowa. There was a Republican governor and a Republican legislature that put it into place in Iowa in 1980. They did it to save taxpayers dollars. And the only cost to taxpayers in Iowa right now during the redistricting process is to hire vans to take the Legislative Service Bureau around to four mandated public hearings around the state every 10 years to get the people's input on the plan that they've drawn. In Wisconsin, by contrast, the Republicans have spent $4 million of Wisconsin taxpayer money to defend utterly indefensible voting maps that were so gerrymandered but that the Republican leaders do not want to lose control of. And so they just opened up the Wisconsin Treasury, and now we've had to pay $4 million. You said that the commission, the people designated to draw these maps, are supposed to be nonpartisan. How do you enforce that? I mean, I think that a lot of times now, the most heinous things are done. And if you question whether it's nonpartisan, if it's fair or honest, they just say, oh, you're fake news. They have no compunction at all about lying. (laughs) So how do you make sure something is nonpartisan? What's the mechanism for that in Iowa or elsewhere? That's why the Iowa system is so effective, I think. We hear that charge regularly from our opponents, and they say, well, how are you going to find nonpartisan people to draw the maps? And you're going to hold unaccountable bureaucrats. How can you hold them accountable for drawing the legislative maps? legislators should be held accountable. Well, that argument's ridiculous on its face because legislators are not accountable because they occupy safe districts that they gerrymandered so that they can never lose. So there's no accountability of the legislature. The way you ensure that you have a nonpartisan process is to stipulate a strict nonpartisan criteria for drawing the maps as they have in Iowa. So the Legislative Service Bureau, which is a nonpartisan agency, they don't just sit around the table and say, oh, let's do it this way. They have to abide by very strict criteria when they are drawing the lines. 
as I mentioned at the outset, they have to try to keep counties together. They have to look at the shape of the district. Again, contiguity and the relationship of cities and counties. In Wisconsin, 48 of the 72 counties are split between legislators for partisan purposes. In Iowa, only a couple of the large counties, the county that Des Moines is in the capital, and maybe one other, do have a county that's even split up at all because those counties are larger than the legislative districts that occupy them. So those are the types of things that prevent the sort of shenanigans that the other side claims would happen if you had a process like this. It's strict criteria, nonpartisan criteria. I think the most important of those is not using past election results. Because if you think about it, if you use past election results when you're drawing the boundaries of a new state legislative or congressional district, you are by definition gerrymandering it because you're seeking a different result from the past election, and you're using those election results to ensure that you get a different result. In Iowa, they don't mandate competitiveness, but as a result of using the nonpartisan criteria to draw the maps, they tend to have more competitive elections. The main thing I like about it is that ideas prevail over the partisan line drawing. So if the Republicans have a great set of ideas that sweep the state of Iowa, then they win on that basis. They're not winning because the seats were drawn to favor them over the Democrats. Same thing for the Democrats. So we're not seeking to give the other side an advantage. I'm not seeking to give the Democrats in Wisconsin or the Republicans in Illinois an advantage in the process. We're just seeking to make sure that neither political party has a, an advantage and that the lines reflect the population changes. They don't reflect political aspirations of incumbents who want to be in power for 30 or 40 years. Folks, we're speaking with Jay Heck. He is executive director of Common Cause Wisconsin. And we're talking about fairness. We're talking about inviting democracy back. Jay, you're pretty aware of how our representative democracy is not being representative or democratic. Could you spell out a little bit of the evidence you know about why that's true? Well, it's a two-edged sword in this sense. There has certainly been an attack on the what we call the underpinnings of democracy, a calculated attempt, I think, over the last 10 years. Without being partisan, it's perfectly safe to say that the Republican Party in particular has decided that in order to gain power and to hold on to power, that it's in their interest, their political interests. And you could even argue whether it really is in their political interest, but at least in their short-term political interests to do things that give them a partisan advantage, such as gerrymandering. I think one of the greatest things that we've seen in changes is in the voter suppression efforts around the country. And in Wisconsin, Wisconsin used to have the second largest voter turnout in the country, second only to our, our neighbors to the West Minnesota. In almost every election, we made it relatively simple for people to vote. You can register to vote on Election Day, same-day registration, as we call it. And both political parties took advantage of that by registering lots of people, and and voter turnout was very strong. But what happened in Wisconsin in 2011, and this was something that was developing in other states and that had been planned in Wisconsin earlier, in 2011, the Wisconsin legislature and Governor Walker instituted the most restrictive voter ID law in the country, more extreme and restrictive than states like South Carolina or Mississippi or Texas, states that had a history of trying to suppress the vote of a certain segment of the population, but primarily people of color, African-Americans. 
In Wisconsin, we were just the opposite. We invited everyone to vote and everybody to participate. But in 2011, they ran through on a partisan basis this particular law that really allows the fewest forms of photo ID that can be used in order to vote. And they made it particularly difficult for people of color that live in urban areas like Milwaukee who don't have a driver's license and rely on public transportation. They made it particularly difficult for college students, particularly college students who come from Minnesota or from Illinois or some other state in the country to go to college in Wisconsin. Most people have every right to register to vote in Wisconsin, but they made the ID process so difficult for those people that you can't even use a photo ID that's issued at many of the public universities in Wisconsin to vote. They put certain restrictions on what photo IDs you can use and what and what you can't use. So as a consequence of that, voter turnout has been driven down in this state deliberately as a result of that. So that's a perfect example of how democracy has been attacked. And then, as I said before, Wisconsin used to have fairly fair elections. We had a public financing system, a very good one for Supreme Court elections, but even a partial public financing system for the legislature. Candidates agreed to spending limits, and the Wisconsin legislature got rid of all of that. They made it much easier for special interest money and dark money, that's undisclosed money from out of state, to be able to flow into Wisconsin. Most of that money is corporate money. Most of it supports Republicans. They not only did that, but they also destroyed the public employee unions in Wisconsin. Something called Act 10, which was ran through in 2011, destroyed collective bargaining but it also destroyed the power of the public unions to participate in elections. It got rid of their dues checkoff, and that really destroyed a major source of funding for the Democratic Party in the state. So this was all an attempt to transform Wisconsin from a vigorous two-party state. And we have elections here that have been gone back and forth. It was, prior to 2011, one of the most closely divided states in the country. It still is in some ways, but not as much as it used to be. They tried to transform it into a safe Republican seat. And again, because of gerrymandering, they control the legislature, they control the congressional delegation. But finally, people had enough of that, and they did get rid of Governor Walker narrowly and elected a Democratic governor, Tony Evers, last November. But then just weeks ago, in early April, they turned around and a more progressive candidate for the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which is a critical position here in this state, a progressive was expected to win an open seat that a progressive longtime chief justice was retiring from. And it was won by a conservative in large part because of a million dollars of dark money that flowed into the state in the last week of the election. And also the conservatives, I think, were just determined they were going to organize and get people to the polls. You know, one of the things I think progressives make a mistake is if they blame all of their woes simply on the fact that all of these things have happened to democracy. That is, in large part, some of it. But the other thing that's happened that I've seen in the last 10 years is that the conservatives, uh, Republican organizations, have a much better grounding in elections than they used to. And in some states like Wisconsin, they've surpassed the ability of progressives to go out and knock on doors and do all the things that Democratic candidates used to do and that progressives have been famous for doing, you know, the sort of person-to-person organizing. So that needs to be something that's part of the equation if we're going to turn this tide around. 
It can't be just blaming the other side for the stuff that they put in the wall. That's certainly part of it. But there has to be a realization that, you know, you can't just point your finger and blame voter ID laws. In Wisconsin, what we do and what we do with other organizations is we go out and find people that don't have the right ID to be able to either register to vote or to be able to go to the polling place and vote. And we make sure they get the right ID. We've instituted a rides to the polls program to take people that don't have cars that can't drive to the polls. You know, you have to be proactive. You can't just sort of fight against all the bad things that are happening to you. I'm wondering about another factor or two that seem to be significant nationwide. I think that progressives used to win more often because cynicism wasn't as high. The increase in cynicism means that progressives don't go to the polls. I think conservatives, who are much more clear about their marching orders, and I don't mean that they're all just lockstep obeying their master, but I think they're maybe more conscientious that they go to the polls more dependably. Are there measures of that? Because, you know, in 2018, we did see the change in the governorship here in Wisconsin. The election for the state Supreme Court, that's an April election. Democrats, uh, a lot of people don't turn out for. So idealism is kind of a, a driving force, I think, in 2018, much less so in April of 2019. That's right. Although I think one of the lessons in the state of Wisconsin from not only the 2018 gubernatorial election, but also the Supreme Court election, is that I think progressives sometimes make the mistake of saying, well, all right, we just won the governorship, so we're going to win the next one. You know, we're going to, this is going to be fine. This is the tide. The tide is turned. We're now moving in the right direction. And that requires hard work to sustain that. That is, as you mentioned, a much lower turnout election. And so it requires even greater mobilization to get people out to vote. The turnout is going to be less than they're going to have in a November election, but the stakes are so high. You know, the Supreme Court of Wisconsin, again, it used to be an entity that was considered nationwide to be impartial, nonpartisan. It was what other states modeled their Supreme Courts after. But about 10 years ago, when Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce and Wisconsin Club for Growth decided to put a lot of special interest money into winning Wisconsin Supreme Court elections, the joke is that they calculated it's, it's cheaper to buy a Supreme Court than it is to buy the whole legislature. So they targeted millions of dollars in the Supreme Court races, and then they gained a majority in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And this election this past April here in Wisconsin would have kept the conservative majority at four to three. Now it's five to two. So what that means is that the next Supreme Court election, which by the way is less than a year away, in April of 2020, becomes extremely critical as well because it's going to require the defeat of a conservative incumbent Supreme Court justice just to get back to four to three. There'll be some motivation, I think, to do that. And also the fact is that in Wisconsin, that also happens to be the date, uh, April 2020, when the primary election for the presidency is held and there'll be a big turnout on the Democratic side with all the candidates. Who knows how many will still be around by next year, but there'll be, be a large turnout on the Democratic and progressive side for president, and that ought to boost the ability of a progressive to take that seat. But that's an opportunity lost this year because next year could have been gaining control of the Supreme Court in Wisconsin. And that's critical for issues like redistricting. If a redistricting case goes to the Wisconsin Supreme Court or a voting rights case or any number of other cases, economic or health-wise, health 
health care, women's choice, all of those things, people know that the Supreme Court's enormously important. But you know what the vote's going to be on any issue. And right now, it's a 5-2 conservative majority. So that's an opportunity missed. And I think what you're talking about is so important that the energy level, that the organization, that the going out and finding people who are not registered to vote or who don't have the proper ID or don't have a ride, those are things that have to happen every day of the year. It can't be just at election time. And you can't just hope that things are going to turn out okay because they did in the past election. I'm fairly distressed by the state of democracy, the representative democracy in our country. But I'm really glad that Common Cause, both nationally and in Wisconsin, is working for it. Let's make clear what the objective of Common Cause is. Uh, From your website, it says, Common Cause Wisconsin strives to ensure that every eligible voter can have a say that our elections represent the will of the people and that our state government is of, by, and for the people. Those objectives, I think, are very clearly nonpartisan, except for those people whose idea of partisan means I get to make all the rules, you know. (laughs) If nonpartisan means you don't get to control everything and therefore you oppose it, I think that that's a flawed definition of what partisan, nonpartisan should be. So on your website for Common Cause Wisconsin, you have main campaigns related to gerrymandering and representation, voting in election, constitution courts and other democracy issues, and money and influence. Right now, the redistricting is top billing for the work you're doing. Any other important issues that you're very involved in right now and that you see movement in? Sure. You know, redistricting, obviously. And by the way, the United States Supreme Court has just heard oral arguments late March on a North Carolina case uh, that could, if it were to be decided in the way in which we hope it would be, could undermine partisan gerrymandering in every state in the country, including Wisconsin and Illinois. I'm not sure I have faith that the current composition of the U.S. Supreme Court is going to come to that conclusion, but uh, it's possible. Uh, Other issues that are important are, for us, the behavior of elected officials, their ethics. You know, we were, not too many years ago, 17 years ago, there was a tremendous scandal in Wisconsin that brought down both the Democratic Senate Majority Leader in in the Senate, Wisconsin State Senate, and the Assembly Speaker in the biggest political scandal in Wisconsin in 100 years. And we never really cleaned up Wisconsin to prevent that from happening again. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats are accused of felony misconduct in public office. This didn't happen in Illinois or New Jersey or, you know, Pennsylvania or states that you might expect that you that there would be scandal. This happened in squeaky clean Wisconsin. And so ethics, the Republicans and Governor Walker destroyed the, the best nonpartisan, well, the only nonpartisan state agency that oversaw elections and ethics and lobbying and campaign finance in the country, uh, the Wisconsin Government Accountability Board. They totally destroyed it, destroyed it in 2015. They made it so that it was no longer nonpartisan. They got rid of judges who sat on the board and instead put partisans on the board and they've made it so that they can control the process, the legislature. They don't want to want ever to be investigated again like they were investigated in the past. And so that's another thing we're very concerned about. Uh, we're concerned about, obviously, the concentration of power in the hands of too few people. Uh, the legislative leadership can raise millions of dollars from special interest groups and control that money to decide who runs in their own political party and who they're going to destroy. That's not the kind of power that any single legislator ought to have. 
So we're interested in the whole balance of power. We're really, I guess, really concerned about getting people, the citizens of the state, back into the equation. And I will tell you, uh, I am optimistic that things will change because as a result of what happened last November, I saw more younger people than I have ever seen in my 20-some years at Common Cause get involved in our issues. Uh, They're the new generation. I have a son that's 27 and a daughter that's 24, and both of them are very politically involved, and many of their friends are, and many people younger than them are involved. They care about things like climate change. They care about the kind of world that my generation is leading them, uh, which is not a very good world. And so they are more politically active than I think almost any generation we've seen since the kids in the early 1960s and mid-1960s. And those people had a real self-interest. They didn't want to get drafted and they didn't want to get sent to Vietnam. Uh, The generation today doesn't face that direct threat of having to go to war, but they do face the direct threat of not having the world last as long as they live in it. So I'm optimistic that we're going to see a new, we're beginning to see a new generation and a new era of progressive activism in states like Wisconsin, but I think also all over the country. And, you know, Donald Trump, I think, provides the rationale. If anybody thinks we shouldn't be more active, I think he's, every day he's in office, he provides the rationale for people of all ages to get involved and participate more in taking back their democracy. I'm thankful that you, Jay Heck, and that Common Cause of Wisconsin and nationally, Karen Hobart Flynn and others are working so assiduously to try and bring back democracy. And your efforts are invaluable. I'm so thankful that you do them and that people, if they want to track you down, they go to commoncause.org slash Wisconsin. The link's on nortonspiritradio.org. Thank you, Jay, for your 23 years of service as Executive Director for Common Cause Wisconsin. If I could just also, Mark, the site that you gave is, is certainly an okay site to go to, but we have actually a state website as well. It's commoncausewisconsin.org. That's a bit more current because that will take you to what we're actually doing now. We do keep our state site on the national updated to some degree, but the state site that I just cited, commoncausewisconsin.org, I think will give you a better picture of what's happening here in Wisconsin. And people should feel free to email me or call me. I'd be delighted to chat with you, talk about opportunities here in Wisconsin or even nationally if you want to get more involved. Feel free to contact Common Cause in your state, wherever you are in Wisconsin. CommonCauseWisconsin.org is the website. You'll get a hold of Jay Heck and Sandra, his co-worker. They're working to make sure that we have as clean a government and as close to democracy, a representative democracy, as we can have. Thank you, Jay, for that continuing work, and thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Mark, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. And folks, we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh